Production. Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Tonight is Friday, October 30th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Melissa and I are almost home from our recent visits to Northwest Louisiana and Eureka Springs, Arkansas, and also Biloxi, Mississippi. Tonight we are on the Chudakabuff River in Biloxi, Mississippi. We would like to thank all of our wonderful hosts and all of the excellent Christian identity brethren who we saw along the way. We even managed to make a short drive through Branson, Missouri, a couple of hours anyway, and also Harrison, Arkansas, to meet Billy Roper. However, this trip has not been without some challenges. After the program last Friday, we had an extended discussion which was often, to say the least, quite animated with an old-time Christian identity pastor from southern Missouri. No, it wasn't our, any of our trolls. It seems that there are quite a few identity Christians in the Ozarks who think that the King James Version of the Bible is indeed the inspired Word of God and that there is no other. So once we get settled back home in Panama City, we shall indeed address that issue in detail, hopefully next Saturday night. As another good friend in Louisiana likes to say, rather sarcastically, if the King James Version was good enough for Moses, it's good enough for me. And that statement alone should emphasize how ridiculous the King James only position really is because, of course, Moses did not write the Pentateuch as it exists in the King James Version. But sadly, it is difficult to talk about Scripture in any great depth to someone who holds the notion that the King James Version, with all of its flaws, is the only legitimate version of Scripture. In fact, there have really been several King James Versions, and the Bible called the King James Authorized Version now, King James himself would not recognize. Next week, I pray, we shall see that the King James translators themselves would have never upheld the idea that their version is the only legitimate version of Scripture. That idea is rather new in Christianity and has no foundation in truth. The Holy Scriptures existed for many centuries. In fact, the books of Moses existed for at least... 31 centuries before the King James Version ever existed, and none of the apostles or prophets ever wrote in English. Tonight, that being 
enough on that topic for now. Tonight we are going to present a critical review of the sermon by Bertrand Compare entitled Historic Proofs of Israel's Migrations. Tonight we are not going to be too critical of Bertrand Compare, but we will hope to augment some of his work while offering some criticism. Since we are still on the road, we are now going to present another paper by Bertrand Compare. We are doing this with the hope of putting Compare's sermons in perspective. They are not the end of Christian identity learning. Over the years, we have had many critics who have expressed chagrin for many of the things which we have said about Bertrand Compare or Wesley Swift or others. And that is quite unfortunate. We can appreciate our teachers, and we should, but we should not put them on pedestals. That is idolatry. Rather, we must build on their work and offer corrections when it is needed. So when we offer criticism of Bertrand Compare, it should certainly not be seen as a condemnation of a good man. Rather, we must move forward from where he and others have left us and continue to develop a better Christian identity understanding through further study of the scriptures along with history and archaeology. Compare helped to point the way, but he alone is certainly not the destination. And of course, neither am I. Last week, we presented a critical review of Bertrand Compare's sermon, Israel's Fingerprints. After doing so, this week, we listen to a little more of Compare's original recording. Disappointingly, we have found that apparently Gene Snyder had left out portions of Compare's words when she transcribed the sermon. Or we may have been a little more critical of Compare than we were. Now, I really don't know why Jean Snyder did that. She never indicated to me that she had done that in five years of correspondence with her, perhaps six years. No, I'm sorry. I'm thinking about Lorraine Swift. With Jean Snyder, I corresponded for probably nine or ten years. And she passed on in 2008. So I, went, I may never know why she left some of Compare's words out of her transcriptions. But I do know that she had always seemed to be sincere and sought to defend Compare and help protect his legacy. So we can only be left guessing, but perhaps realizing that some of his comments on prophecy were not entirely accurate, Compare had um, 
believed a few things concerning the Russian and the, the Soviet Empire and the United Nations that just simply didn't materialize in prophecy. Perhaps she, having the benefit of maybe 20 additional years of hindsight, simply omitted some of his comments. I can't really answer why. I can only guess that that might be the case. For my part, I would rather she had transcribed all of Compare's original words. She did not, and perhaps one day we may find somebody who may. This is the historic proof of Israel's migrations by Bertrand Compare. The original sermon will be linked as we post this podcast at Christagenia.org later this evening. Compare starts off by saying, in my lesson called Israel's Fingerprints, which we just happened to have presented here last week, I have briefly sketched for you some of the Bible's evidence that the Anglo-Saxon, Scandinavian, and Germanic people of today are the living descendants of the Israel of the Bible. This evidence is in the form of many Bible prophecies of Israel's future, which has been accurately fulfilled by these nations and no others. If the people who have actually done all the things which Yahweh said Israel would do, and who have received the exact blessings which Yahweh said he would give to Israel, if they are not Israel, how could Yahweh be so greatly mistaken? No, Yahweh was not mistaken. He knew what he would do and for whom he would do it by making good all his prophecies and promises. He has identified these nations as Israel. Now here Compre himself made a reference to the sermon which we had presented here last week, and last week we commented on his repeated use of the phrase Anglo-Saxon and Scandinavian, and he left it at that, in reference to the modern children of Israel, the children of Israel in the world today. We said that by it, he had to have meant to include the Germanic people as a whole. Here he substantiates that claim for us because he himself adds the word Germanic to the equation. We spoke about the dangers of oversimplification. Even this clause, Anglo-Saxon, Scandinavian, and Germanic, does not represent all of the children of Israel in the world today with complete accuracy. Some, may ex- some people, because of what Compare has here, may attempt to exclude the Irish, or the original Spaniards, or the original Greeks, or Italians. Yet all of these people, except perhaps the Ionian Greeks, when I say Greeks, I'm referring to the Dorian and Danan Greeks, all of these people also descended from Israel in great degree, as well as from some of the other Adanic tribes. Are they all Israelites today? Certainly not, because of the Arab and Turkic conquests in Europe. 
However, the original stock of these nations, and there are remnants without a doubt, the original stock of these nations cannot be easily discarded. So we see how hard it is to make an accurate description for a sermon. And therefore, we should realize that sound doctrine cannot be based on sermons alone. So much for the identity Christians who refuse to admit that we must build upon compare. We certainly must. We cannot stop with what compare had left us. We must continue to perfect our account of our history and our message. To continue with Bertrand Compare, there are some people that won't believe Yahweh and will not accept his identification of these nations as Israel. In fact, one clergyman with whom I discussed this, a minister of a church in this country, wrote to me demanding to know what other historians at the time, in what books, chapters, and verses, record their migrations into northern and western Europe and the British Isles. He is only one of many skeptics who ask this, and to these skeptics, the answer is yes. Various historians of those centuries have traced many steps of this migration. And we must add that this is certainly true. But few of the scoffers actually take the time to investigate it, even when we supply the books, the chapters, and the verses. Often, when they hear us, people exclaim something like, oh, that's British Israel. No, it's not. The appropriate answer should be, it is not British Israel. It's Genesis chapters 48 and 49. It's Isaiah, Daniel, and Jeremiah. That's what Christian identity is. In brief. Returning to Compare, he says, what I propose to do now for you is to trace the migration historically. Remember, within the time limits which must necessarily be fixed on such a lesson as this. I can only hit the high spots. You know how large a library can be filled with history books, so I can't quote them all verbatim. However, I will have enough time to show you that the historians have traced this migration from Israel's old Palestinian home into the European homes as the Anglo-Saxon, Scandinavian, and Germanic peoples. Not under their old names, of course, but that also is the fulfillment of Yahweh's prophecy that he would call his servants by another name. Surely you now know that the Bible identifies Israel only and Israel only as Yahweh's servants. The migrations of the, tw of the Israelites covered about 12 centuries, during which time they were mentioned by various historians, writing in different languages during different centuries. So therefore, they are mentioned under different names. Even today, 
if you were to read a London newspaper, a Paris newspaper, and a Berlin newspaper, all dated about the end of 1940, you would find that the British newspaper said that in that year, France was invaded by the Germans. The French newspaper said that the invasion was by Les Allemands. And the German newspaper said the invasion was by Der Deutsch. Yet, all three were talking about the same people and the same invasion. We must not be surprised to find the Israelites were given different names in the Assyrian, Greek, and Latin languages. Even in the same languages, names change from century to century. Just as today, we never speak of Bohemia, as it was called a century ago, but only of Czechoslovakia. Remember, the original 12-tribe nation of Israel broke up into two nations upon the death of King Solomon, about 975 B.C. The northern two-thirds of the land containing the ten tribes kept the name Israel, while the southern one-third containing the tribes of Benjamin and Judah with many of the Levites, and we must add with, also with most of the tribe of Simeon, took the name of Judah after the royal tribe. From that time on, they kept their separate existence until they were finally merged into a vast migration, as we will see. Most of the kings of the ten tribes, northern kingdom of Israel, were distinguished more for their wickedness than for any ability. However, Omri, who reigned from 885 B.C. to 874 B.C., was a vigorous and able king. Although as wicked as the others, his reign was considered among the other nations of Western Asia as the foundation upon which the national identity thereafter rested. The language of that day spoke of a family, a tribe, or even a whole nation as a house or household. If you have read your Bible much, you must surely remember Yahweh's many references to the house of Israel or the kingdom of Judah, or actually also the house of Judah. The phrase was also used in those days to refer to a nation as the house of a great king who ruled it. The Assyrians, among others, began calling the ten-tribed kingdom of Israel the house of Amri. In Hebrew, house was Babith or Baeth. In English, it was usually spelled Beth and pronounced Beth. In the related Semitic languages of Assyrian, it was bit. The Hebrew Amri was in Assyrian, sometimes written Homeri or Kumri. Now, all of this was well and good. However, and these are my words, the distribution of Israel into various nations did not begin with the Assyrian deportations. Rather, it began as early as the captivity in Egypt. Solomon's ships of Tarshish were sailing to Iberia, a land named by the Hebrews long before Omri was king in Israel. 
We have, much to our consternation, a land, I'm sorry, we have heard, much to our consternation, many identity Christians comment on the Romans and make the very errant claim that the Romans descended from Israelites of the Assyrian deportations. I was quite astounded when I heard that come from anyone. It's something which is quite ludicrous considering the history of ancient Rome. Now, those who made such a claim meant to do well, trying to fit the Romans into the picture of Israel's migrations, which is drawn here by Compare, because reading Paul's epistle to the Romans, it is certain that the Romans were indeed Israelites. But they were certainly not Israelites in that manner. The Romans certainly did not come from the Assyrian deportation. The Greek historian, Theodore Siculus, quoting from the earlier historian, Hecatahius of Abdera, who gave a strange account of the Israelite exodus from Egypt from the contrary viewpoint, from an Egyptian viewpoint, said that the aliens, meaning the people in Egypt who were not Egyptians, the children of Israel, the aliens, were driven from the country, and the most outstanding and active among them banded together and, as some say, were cast ashore in Greece and certain other regions. Their leaders were notable men, chief among them being Danos and Cadmus. Danos being, in the pagan Greek literature, the eponymous ancestor of the tribe of the Danans. Cadmus, in pagan Greek literature, usually was called Cadmus the Phoenician. Didoros continues by saying, but the greater number were driven into what is now called Judea. The colony was headed by a man called Moses, outstanding both for his wisdom and for his courage. By all of their own accounts, the Romans were derived from the Trojans, and the Trojans can be connected to the ancient Israelites through Darda, the legendary founder of Troy, and Calcol, a name very similar to that of the Greek legendary founder of Pamphylia in 1 Kings chapter 4. Even better recorded among the Greeks is the fact that the Danan Greeks had originally come into Argos from Egypt at a time when the only people of such a name in Egypt were the Israelites of the tribe of Dan. Then, it may be established through Homer and more explicitly through Flavius Josephus the Judean historian, that the Dorians, who appeared in Greece in the 12th century BC, had come from the Israelites through Dor in Palestine, through Crete and into Greece. Shortly after that time, the Phoenicians began colonizing 
the western Mediterranean, and the British Isles. So the migrations of Israel must be extended some eight centuries back before Comparate claims that they began here. They actually began in the 16th century BC and did not end until the 4th or 5th century AD. With this, returning to Compare, he says, with this preface in mind, let's start tracing the Israelites from their Palestinian homeland in the Assyrian conquest and deportation. In 2 Kings, chapter 15, verse 29, we read, In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, came Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and took Ejon, and Abel-Beth-Makkah, and Janua, and Kadesh, and Hazor, and Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and carried them captive to Assyria. 2 Chronicles 5.26 records, and I'm not sure that that's the correct um, correct citation. I neglected to check that one. Records, and the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, and the spirit of Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and he carried them away, even the Reubenites and the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh, and he brought them unto Hala and Habor, and to the river goes on unto this day. It's probably 2 Chronicles 25, 26, if I had to guess. And perhaps there's a character missing in the original. I apologize for that. We'll fix it for the, for the posting of this podcast, for the notes. Confirmation, Compare says, confirmation of this is found in inscriptions of Tiglath-Pileser, which archaeologists have dug up and are in our museums today. One of these says, the cities of Galaza, which he says is probably Assyrian for Galilee, Abilkah, probably Assyrian for Abel Beth Makkah, which are on the border of Bithumria, the whole land of Naphtali in its entirety, I brought within the border of Assyria. My official, I set over them as governor. The land of Bithumria, all of its people, together with all of their goods, I carried off to Assyria. Pahaka, their king, they deposed, and I placed Alsi as king. In confirmation of this change in kings, we read in 2 Kings 15.30, And Hosea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Remaliah, and smote him, and slew him, and reigned in his stead. And of course, the Alsi of the Assyrian inscription is the Hosea of the record in Kings. 2 Kings chapter 15, and the Pahaka is the Pekah 
of 2 Kings, chapter 15. The differences in the spellings of names come through dialectual differences when names are transliterated from one language to another. That's natural, even when we take um, cities like Cologne, which the French call it, Cologne in Germany, and it's simply, I believe, Cone in German, but it's Cologne in French. We could see that over and over again on our own maps when we consider the way different city names and personal names are spelled in different languages. 2 Kings 15.29 does indeed agree with the information in the ancient inscriptions. 2 Kings 15.30 is rectified with the ancient inscriptions if it is understood that the conspiracy made by Hosea against Pekah had most likely been made in league with Tiglath-Pileser and in connection with the Assyrian policy. Returning to Kampere, the conquest thus had begun in the northeastern and northern parts of the kingdom about 740 BC. Then it worked southward down to the heavily fortified capital city to Samaria, which was captured about 721 BC. Another king of Assyria reigned by that time. 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 9 through 11, records it as follows. And it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah of Judah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmanazar, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, they took it, even in the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is, the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. And the king of Assyria did carry away Israel unto Assyria and put them in Halah and in Habor by the river of Gozan and in the city of the Medes. We know King Shalmanazar died toward the later part of, his, of this siege, and the final conquest and deportation was carried on by his successor, King Sargon II. In confirmation of this, an inscription of Sargon II says, In the beginning of my reign, the city of Samaria, I besieged, I captured 27,280 of its inhabitants, which I carried away. The deportation of a whole nation naturally took a considerable period of time. The journey had to be organized with adequate supplies for each convoy on each stage of the journey and proper organization of the places selected to receive them. We know that Sargon II did not hold the cities of the Medes east of the Zagros Mountains until a few years after 721 B.C. So about 715 B.C. to 712 B.C. is the correct date for the deportation to Media. The places to which Israel was deported by the Assyrians can be summed up as constituting an arc or semicircle around the southern end of the Caspian Sea. The, um, the inscriptions of Tiglath-Pileser and Sargon II, which Compre cites here, are found on pages 283 and 284 
of ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament, a book of important inscriptions found by archaeologists, which was published by Princeton University Press in 1969. Now, there are older books, such as those written by Donald Luckinbill in the early 20th century, which also contain transcript translations of those same inscriptions, to which Compare may have had access. But with some of Compare's details, we would disagree as he seems to be conjecturing. The 27,280 Israelites would not have been kept at a totally destroyed city, such as Samaria, for several years before being led captive. The Assyrian concept of deportation, which was actually also mentioned by Greek historians, the Assyrian concept of deportation and resettlement was developed as a way to control rebellious subject peoples. And there was no better control than forcing them to live in wilderness encampments. There's something else I wanted to say that I'm not that I didn't prepare for in advance, and that's this. Back in uh, 1998, perhaps, I believe it was 98, when I first read all of these sermons by Bertrand Capare, I made lists so that I could buy or obtain otherwise that the books that he mentioned and study those books firsthand for myself. Here, Compare actually um, doesn't mention what book or what historian he got these inscriptions from. It took me quite a while to find the sources for his information so that I could learn it firsthand for myself, read it for myself. That's um, the problem with simply doing sermons. I could get up here every Friday night and just shoot from the hip and say what I thought should be said about Scripture. I might get 70 or 80% of what I usually get without doing any formal writing and citations in advance. To me, it's more important to do the formal writing and provide the citations in advance so that other people reading what I have to say don't have to search through the proverbial hell or high water in order to find it. So we have to, as an identity community, we have to build on what Compare left us. If he didn't cite something that, it's, that he said, we have to look for it. That's just the way it is. If we can't find it, we probably shouldn't repeat it ourselves because we have to be able to prove our message. Just shooting from the head isn't good enough. It's informative. Bertrand Compare, we owe him a great debt because he pointed us in the right direction. But he's not the end of our studies. He's only the beginning. Compare continues by saying, this deportation took in 
the entire population of the ten northern tribes constituting the nation of Israel, and we'll express some disappointment with that statement shortly. From this point on, the separation into tribes is apparently lost, and it is as a nation that the kingdom of Israel moved into its Assyrian captivity, perhaps he may have said as a single nation. This left part of the other two tribes still living in the southern kingdom of Judah. Assyria and Egypt were the two giant empires of that day, each seeking domination over all the smaller and weaker nations. As Assyria had driven Egyptian influence out of Western Asia, back to the continent of Africa, and had made all the smaller nations surrounding Judah into vassal states, paying heavy tribute to Assyria. The brutal and rapacious character of the Assyrians made them no friends. Their vassal states were always hopefully looking for any means of escape from Assyrian power. Egypt kept the hope of revolt alive by offers of military assistance to those who would rebel against Assyria. The death of the king seemed the most opportune time for revolt since his successor would need time to get his power organized. He might even face some competition at home for his throne. Therefore, when King Sargon II of Assyria died about 705 BC, revolts began in Western Asia. The kingdom of Judah, under King Hezekiah, taking part in the hope of military aid from Egypt, the prophet Isaiah had warned that the revolt would fail. It is, these are my own words, another gross oversimplification of history to say that the Assyrian deportations, quote-unquote, took in the entire population of the ten northern tribes constituting the nation of Israel. And this statement is almost true because it took in most of that population. But this statement leads to a lack of understanding as to why Christ would accept the words of the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, who confessed that her heritage was from Jacob, or why the apostles would be converting certain of the Samaritans to Christ in Acts chapter 8. Those people were not from other races. In fact, the first uncircumcised people as the Apostle Peter attests, were converted to Christ by him, referring to those of the household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. There is evidence in Scripture, such as in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, that at least some Israelites were left behind in a land after the Assyrian deportations. There, in words attributed to King Josiah, it says in verse 21, Go, inquire of Yahweh for me, and for them that are left in Israel and in Judah, 
concerning the words of the book that is found, for great is the wrath of Yahweh that is poured out upon us because our fathers have not kept the word of Yahweh to do after all that is written in this book. Now, Josiah was king of Judah 80 years after the fall of Samaria. Some of the Samaritans were indeed these people left in Israel, which were later converted to Christ. However, because they had long lost their genealogies, they were never considered as Israelites by the Judeans of the later Second Temple period, and therefore they were despised, but they were considered as lost sheep by Christ and his apostles, or they would not have been converting them after the crucifixion because they were alienated from God. Christ told his apostles not to go to them while he conducted his earthly ministry, but they were nevertheless Israelites. And some of them actually did attempt to keep the law and the Sabbaths. The Samaritan woman at the well was in expectation of the Messiah by her own words as they are recorded by John. Returning to Kampere, he says, talking about the death of Sargon II, the new king of Assyria, Sennacherib set about recovering his empire. One rebellious city after another was reconquered with the hideous cruelty characteristic of Assyria. In 701 BC, Sennacherib's huge army invaded the kingdom of Judah. Midway through it, they paused briefly to defeat the Egyptian army, then moved on to besiege Jerusalem. None of the smaller cities of Judah were able to resist. 2 Kings chapter 18 and Isaiah chapter 36 record, In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then followed the siege of Jerusalem, which was ended when the angel of Yahweh killed 185 Assyrian soldiers in one night, and Sennacherib gave up the siege and fled back to his own land. Now, while Compare missed any mention of this in his earlier sermon, Israel's fingerprints, we are pleased that, it, that he discussed it here. Many identity Christians discount the tribe of Judah entirely, not realizing that much of Judah was included along with Israel in the Assyrian deportations. This is another important facet of the history of Israel and Judah, which is often overlooked. It's dangerous to overlook that. There truly is. There absolutely is a legitimate tribe of Judah in the world today, which exists separately from those bastards that we call Jews. Compare did well to point out the constant rebellion and reconquest which occurred practically every time a new Assyrian king came to power.
Returning to, and the Assyrian monuments fully reflect that situation. Returning to Compare, he says, in confirmation of this, Sennacherib's own record of this says, I then besieged Hezekiah of Judah, who had not submitted to my yoke, and I captured 46 of his strong cities and fortresses and innumerable small cities, which were round about them. With the battering of rams and the assault of engines and the attack of foot soldiers and by mines and breaches made in the walls, I brought out there from 200, uh, it should probably say I brought out from there, 250, I'm sorry, 200,150 people, both great and small. Hezekiah himself, like a caged bird. I shut up within Jerusalem, his royal city. Ancient kings were boastful of their victories, but never of their defeats. King Sennacherib tactfully fails to state how the siege of Jerusalem ended but he does confirm the capture of all the other cities of Judah and the deportation of 200,150 people. Now, the inscription which Compare cites, the inscription of Sennacherib, is found on pages 287 and 288 of ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament. When I first read these sermons, as well as other material, such as that of Irena Kat, I wanted to learn and prove these things for myself from the original sources. That's the Christian challenge, to prove all things. Because these men very often did not supply citations, the process was long and rather arduous. It is imperative that identity Christians be able to prove all of these things, which are certainly true. And to do so, we need to have references to our sources. Returning to Compare, he says, remember, all the people of the ten northern tribes were already settled around the southern end of the Caspian Sea in the Assyrian deportation of Israel. To them was now added a large portion of the two southern tribes of Benjamin and Judah. The Assyrian deportation included all of the ten tribes, for the most part, that's true, but not all, and a substantial representation from the other two. These were the people who became your ancestors and mine when they moved into Europe. Now, these were a large part of our ancestors, but we discredit ourselves if we ignore the inhabitants of the various countries in Europe from before the 8th century BC, many of whom also came from Israel, but many of whom came from the Jephthite as well as other Shemite 
and Hamite tribes. There is not much discussion at all in any of Compare's sermons concerning Trojans, Dorians, Danans, or even Phoenicians in connection with Israel and the early settlement of Europe. It's just not something that I've heard or seen him talk about. Therefore, it is the obligation of other Christian identity students to provide an illustration of this earlier history. And my point in saying this, my point in elucidating this, is to assert to the Christian identity community that Compare cannot be the end of our studies. He's only the beginning. He's a beginning. Swift was another beginning. Rand was good in his own right, in his own time, and he was also just a beginning. Returning to Compare, over the years, the increasing numbers of the Israelite tribes expanded northward along both sides of the Caspian Sea. They were not basically city builders, but farmers and herdsmen. Probably in the earlier part of their stay here, the Assyrians sternly discouraged the building of cities, which would naturally be fortified centers of resistance. As the Israelites were moved into this area, herded along as prisoners, robbed of all their belongings, as even Paul attests, I believe that's in Hebrews chapter 11, they had to make themselves brush shelters or booths where they stopped for any length of time. Here in the southwest, our Indians, I wouldn't have called them our Indians, call such a brushy shelter a wikiup. The Hebrews called it a sukkah, applying the name also to a tent. It was the only house a nomad owned. The plural of sukkah was sukkah. Gradually, this was slurred over into skuth used of a tent dweller or nomad, and finally became Scythian. Let me say that the, uh, it was Scythus in Greek, and in the plural, it was Scythoi. Scythians in Greek is Scythoi. And I fully agree with Compare's etymology of the word here. The Greeks had called the, the Scythians Sakin, when they followed the Persian writers. Kimroi, when they followed the earlier Assyrians. But the Greeks also had this word, skusoi, for both the Sakans and the Kimroi. And I'm convinced that perhaps the Greeks got the word skusoi from the Scythians themselves because only the Scythians could have supplied such a word. Scythoi has no real etymology in Greek. Compare continues by saying, the great carving on the Behistun rock, made about 516 BC, carried inscriptions showing the many different nations who were tributary to King Darius I of Persia. These inscriptions were written in Old Persian, Median, and Assyrian. They showed that among these were a Scythian nation 
called in Assyrian and Babylonian, Gemiri, which means the tribes. From Gemiri was derived the name of the Chimerians, who settled somewhat to the north and into the Ukraine. The Behistun inscriptions also stated that these people were called Sake in Persian and Median. Already, the later names are beginning to evolve. Now, this was E. Raymond Capp's position. However, I have not yet been able to establish that Gemiri simply means the tribes. Others had made that assertion before Capp did. However, checking the Assyrian Dictionary of the Oriental Institute compiled at the University of Chicago, it can be verified, and there'll be a link to that dictionary as I post this podcast, it can be verified that the letters G and K were often interchanged in the Assyrian language. It's also, um, I should also make a note here that the guttural, which precedes many Hebrew words in Hebrew, could also become simply an H or a KH in Assyrian. And that is how Omri becomes Kumri in Assyrian. Omri, if you check your Strong's Concordance, really beginning with a guttural in Hebrew, Humri. Omri is Kumri in Assyrian. So in Assyrian, checking the Assyrian dictionary at the Oriental Institute, also very often interchange the G and the K. And that is evident in quite a few of the entries under the letter G in that Assyrian dictionary. So I'm, I've seen them myself. So it's very evident, and we would argue that in any event, the true source of the word Gamiri could easily be as a permutation of the word Kumri. And we would argue that the true source of the Greek word, Kimeroi, was actually a Hellenized version of Kumri, the Assyrian form of Amri. Sir Henry Rawlinson made the connection of the Gamiri to the Kumri, and many mainstream academic historians have followed. Returning to Capere, he says, the great Greek historian Herodotus, who lived from 44 BC to 425 BC, and was generally called the father of history, speaking of these people says, the sake, or skits, were clad in trousers and had on their heads tall, stiff caps rising to a point. They bore the bow of their country and the dagger, besides which they carried the battle axe, or sagaris. They were, in truth, Amergian Scythians, but the Persians called them sake, since that is the name which they gave to all Scythians. Incidentally, some of the magnificent carved walls of the ancient ruins of the Persian palace at Persepolis show illustrations of those sake in their trousers and pointed caps bringing tribute to the Persian king. 
Now, I must add that in ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament, on page 316, there is a record of an Akkadian inscription which reads very much like this quote from Herodotus, which Compare quotes here. Only on the inscription, rather than saying Scythians, where Herodotus said Amergian Scythians, we find references to Amergian Chimerians and Chimerians reading or, or wearing pointed caps, testifying that the Scythians of Herodotus were indeed the Chimerians of the Assyrians. The Scythians of Herodotus were indeed the same people as the Gimiri or the Cymri of the Assyrians. There should be no doubt. Where we compare, I believe it was in German Origins Part 1, the essay at Christogenia, where we can compare the quote from Herodotus to the inscription left by the Assyrians, the words describing these Amergian Scythians are nearly identical, except that Herodotus substituted the word Scythians where the inscription says Chimerians. Returning to Capere, he says, we are now getting further clues to these people. Herodotus says that the Scythians, or Sake, first appeared in that land in the 7th century BC. This is the same period in which the tribes of Israel were settled there by their Assyrian conquerors. Their use of the battle axe as a weapon is a carryover from their history as Israel. In Jeremiah 51.20, Yahweh says of Israel, Thou art my battle axe and weapons of war, for with thee will I break in pieces the nations, and with thee will I destroy kingdoms. We will see that later the name evolved from Sake to Saxon. It is noteworthy that the battle axe was the great weapon of the Saxons. Now, I have a little criticism here. I do not know where Herodotus may have said anything concerning the dating of the Scythians. Although we do not need any such testimony to establish as much, since we can identify their origin in the Assyrian records. Perhaps Compare deduced this assertion from things he read in Herodotus, which placed the Scythians in certain areas among the Medes in the 7th century. But we recall nothing Herodotus said which indicates that they first appeared in those places at this time. Herodotus's, Herodotus's history is not really concerned with very much from the Assyrian period. And that's because he instead focuses on the Medes from that time forward and the rise of Persia as a world power because Herodotus's objective was to describe the history leading up to the Persian invasion of Greece. 
which is the real reason for writing his histories in the first place. Most of his histories discuss the Persian War against the Greeks under the Darius and Xerxes. And what things Herodotus said about the Scythians preliminary to that were to describe the conquest of the Persians and some of the other history of the region as it built up to the Persian conquest, the attempted Persian conquest of the Greeks. Returning to Kampara, he says, these Scythians, or Sake, lived up to Yahweh's description of Israel as his battle axe and weapons of war. They became a military people of great power who did much to break up ancient nations. The Greek geographer and historian Strabo, who lived between 63 BC and about 21 AD, says, most of the Scythians, beginning from the Caspian Sea, are called Dahi Scythe, and those situated more towards the east, Masagene and Sake. The rest have the common name of Scythians, but each tribe has its own peculiar name. The Sake had made incursions similar to those of the Canamarians and Treres, some near their own country, others at a great distance. They occupied Bactriana and got possession of the most fertile tract in Armenia, which was called, after their own name, Sakasene. They advanced even as far as the Cappadocians, those particularly situated near the Euxine Sea today called the Black Sea. They are now called Pontici. And here Compare is quoting from Book 11, Chapter 8, Paragraph 2, and Paragraph 4 of Strabo's Geography. Note that, um, and we've discussed this in the past, note that Strabo attempts to distinguish between the Scythians and the Chimerians. And that's probably a confusion caused by the change in the lingua franca of the Near East between the time that the first waves of Scythians came into Europe and the later waves of Scythians came into Europe. And I explained this in part one of my essay on German origins. When the first wave of these people came into Europe, the Assyrian language was the lingua franca, the common tongue of trade and diplomacy in the Near East. And the Greeks would have learned of these people invading Europe from the Assyrians, and the Assyrians called them Cymri. So the Greeks called them Kimeroi or Chimerians. Later waves of these people invaded the West and were actually mercenaries in the armies of the Persians. They invaded the West in the times of the Persians, and the Greeks would have learned the names of these later waves from people who spoke Aramaic as their lingua franca. Aramaic was the lingua franca of the Persians, and the Persians called these people Sake, not Cymri or Kimeroi. So as the Eastern inscriptions prove, the Chimerians and the Scythians or Sake are all different names for one 
and the same people. But the ancient Greeks, like Strabo, didn't know that and assumed that they were different waves of different tribes and had different names. So he distinguished Chimerians from Scythians. We must always take into account historical context when we examine the migrations of peoples and the names they are given by their neighbors. To continue with Compare, this was but the early part of their expansion. When a century had elapsed since their deportation to this land of Scythia, actually it's only called the land of Scythia because these people occupying it were called Scythians, they had grown strong enough to begin the long series of harassing wars against the conquerors, the Assyrians. They lacked the strength to capture the powerfully fortified group of cities about the Assyrian capital, and in turn, their nomadic habits made it easy for them to retreat before a too powerful Assyrian army. Generations of this constant warfare wore down the Assyrians and bled them white, so that the Medes finally overran Assyria and captured Nineveh in 612 BC. Their victory was a fairly easy one against the exhausted Assyrians, and I might put my tongue in my cheek and say that the Assyrians could be bled white because they were white in the first place, and they certainly were. Actually, the conquest of the Assyria of Assyria was made by a coalition of nations, which primarily included the Medes, the Scythians, the Persians, and the Babylonians. Isaiah chapter 10 is one place where it is prophesied that the children of Israel would indeed participate in the destruction of Assyria, which also helps to establish that the Scythians are the Israelites of Scripture. Returning to Compare, from this point on, I could refer you to just one historical work which fully traces the Scythians onto their settlement in England as the Anglo-Saxons. A History of the Anglo-Saxons by Sharon Turner does a magnificent job of this. As most of you know, I am a lawyer by profession. A lawyer soon learns to distinguish between the man who actually knows the facts and the man who is merely repeating hearsay, which is gossip and rumor he has heard from others. How do we know whether these others actually know what they are talking about. Unless a man has seen the occurrence with his own eyes, his ideas on a subject are no better than the accuracy of the information he has received. No historian in our times can have any personal knowledge of what happened 2,000 years ago. His writings can be no better than the source material he has obtained from people who lived and wrote at a time when an accurate information could still be had. Most modern history books are based on the rather scanty documentation from early sources. As it is so much easier for one historian to copy from another. And wow, have we seen that. 
Sharon Turner's A History of the Anglo-Saxons is one of the most thoroughly documented historical studies ever produced, and its reliability is beyond question. He traces the Anglo-Saxons of Britain back to the Scythians. Unfortunately, he doesn't go the one step further and trace the Scythians back to Israel, but we can do that from other sources. Now, we also read Sharon Turner's history, History of the Anglo-Saxons. I recently quoted it at length in programs with Sven Longshanks. We read it based at least in part on Bertrand Compare's recommendation here. Turner had his prejudices, don't get me wrong, he wasn't perfect, no writer is perfect, but his work is copiously cited from sources as close as possible to the period about which he is writing. He quotes Latin and, and Gothic and, and Greek and, and French, like, um, like we could quote the King James Version. Turner's work is exactly what Compare says it is. And interestingly, Turner also started his professional adult life as a lawyer. Returning to Compare, he says, let's go back to the Scythians. As the people of Israel became known in the land to which they were deported, Theodore Siculus, a Greek historian who lived in the times of Julius and Augustus Caesar, actually he probably died early in the reign of Augustus Caesar, says this, the Scythians anciently enjoyed but a small tract of ground, but through their valor, growing stronger by degrees, they enlarged their dominion far and near and attained at last to a vast and glorious empire. At the first, a very few of them, and those very despicable for their mean origin, seated themselves near to the Euraxis River. Afterwards, one of their ancient kings, who was a warlike prince and skillful in arms, captured for their country all the mountainous parts as far as to the Caucasus. Sometime afterwards, their posterity becoming famous and eminent for valor and martial affairs, subdued many territories. Then, turning their arms the other way, they led their forces as far as to the Nile River in Egypt. Now, here Compare is paraphrasing from Diodorus Siculus's comments on the Scythians, found in his Library of History, Book 2, Chapter 43. It is not the... Um, it is evidently not the Loeb Library edition of Diodorus Siculus because it's not exactly familiar to the passage that we typically quote, quoting the same passage in our writing at Christogenia. Compare continues, other historians record that blonde Scythians made an expedition against Palestine and Egypt about 626 BC. The town, Scythopolis, in the Jordan Valley, is named for a settlement of this raid. To continue with Diodorus Siculus, he wrote, this nation prospered more and more and had kings that were very famous, from whom the Sakans and the Masagetae and the Aramaspians and many others called by other names 
derived their origin, amongst others. There were two remarkable colonies that were drawn out of the conquered nations by those kings. The one they brought out of Assyria and settled in a country lying between Paphlagonia and the Pontus. The other was drawn out of Media, which they placed near the river Canes, which people are called Sauromatians. Compare continues here, paraphrasing Diodorus's Library of History, Book 2, Chapter 43. The other historians who discussed the Scythian pillage of Palestine and the temporary settlement they had at the place which became known as Scythopolis are probably, probably Josephus and Herodotus. I have these citations in my notes at home, but right now, I'm sorry, I'm not at home. Returning to Compare, he says, Note how Yahweh's destiny for these people worked. They would not leave behind any pockets of their people in the lands where the conquerors had settled them. When they had gained great power, they came back and picked up any who remained, taking them to the migrating mass. Likewise, history records that they raided Babylon after its overthrow by the Medes and Persians, carrying off with them such of the people of Judah and Benjamin as were not going back to Jerusalem. Now, this attitude Copyright expresses here is somewhat disappointing, as it seems to reflect some of the errors of the old British Israel school of Christian identity. Copyright takes it's for granted that where Diodorus described these colonies that they forced some of the people of Assyria and Media into in other places, Compare takes it for granted that those were Israelites settled there earlier, but Diodorus doesn't state that, and there is no proving it. So Compare is basically conjecturing that there's um, no way around it. He's, he's making a conjecture which he bases on religious grounds, which I would not do that with history. And if I ever did do it, I would apologize for it, but it it's not my style. There certainly were pockets of Israelites left behind by the Scythians in Armenia, in Pontus, in Iberia, in Georgia, in the Crimea, in the Ukraine, and so on and so forth as the Scythians migrated west. Many Eurasians, now today race-mixed with Mongols, many Eurasians had descended from the tribes of the Scythians, as well as Afghans and other people who are, who are now mixed in among the Turkic and Arabic peoples of the east. Many Scythians went east instead of west and were later mingled into the great Mongol melting pot. The Parthians are another example of a great Israelite tribe which stayed in the east until they were ostensibly bred or, or interbred out of existence. This is the meaning of Micah chapter 4, verse 7, where Yahweh says, and I will make her, speaking of Israel, and I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast afar off 
a strong nation. And Yahweh shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth, even forever. In his critical notes on his sermon, in relation to the second half of Compare's statement here, Clifton Emmerheiser pointed out that, this being so, the greater part of good fig members of Judah, rather than returning to Jerusalem after 70 years of captivity, joined the 10 tribes in their migrations. And ostensibly that's correct, that a good deal of those good fig members of Judah taken off into the Babylonian captivity had also migrated away, but many of them also stayed behind. And Peter, we find the Apostle Peter attesting that he is in Babylon in his epistles. Now, some people might think, oh no, Peter was using Babylon as a code word for Rome. And it's interesting that I've even seen Catholics make that assertion. But those same Catholics would deny the identity of mystery Babylon with the Roman Catholic Church in the Revelation. So those Catholics are nothing but hypocrites. There's no reason for Peter to be using Babylon as a code word for Rome. Where Peter said Babylon, he was certainly in Babylon because many of the circumcision in Peter's time were still in Babylon. And Peter, by his own words, admits being an apostle to the circumcision. So why wouldn't he go to Babylon to seek out some of the lost sheep among the circumcision? Of course he would. Otherwise, he couldn't have been the apostle to the circumcision. But this is important to understand. And this is the point which Clifton Emmerheiser really wants to raise. Much of Judah and Benjamin did indeed go into captivity with Israel and were indeed among those Scythians who migrated into Europe. There are many clowns calling themselves identity Christians today who would deny that a legitimate tribe of Judah still exists, which is distinct from the people who are now called Jews. But according to the scripture, a legitimate tribe of Judah certainly does exist, which is distinct from the people who are now called Jews, because none of these bastards who are now called Jews are Judah by any stretch of the imagination. Returning to Compare, even in early times, before the final mass movement into Europe, the Scythians had begun their march into their new homelands, where some of them had already arrived before the beginning of the Christian era. Pliny the Elder, a Roman historian who lived from 23 to 79 AD, says this, The name Scythian has extended in every direction, even to the Sarmatahi and the Germans, but this ancient name is now only given to those who dwell beyond those nations and live unknown to nearly all the rest of the world. Beyond the Danube are the peoples of Scythia. The Persians have called them by the general name of Sake, 
which properly belongs only to the nearest nation of them. The more ancient writers give them the name of Arame, and Compare has in quotes, in, in parentheses, I mean, Arameans. The multitude of these Scythians is quite innumerable. In their life and their habits, they much resemble the people of Parthia. The tribes among them that are better known are the Sake, the Masagete, the Dahi, etc. Now, Compare is overlooking an important point here, because where Pliny says of the Sake that the name properly belongs only to the nearest of them, Pliny had meant the nation nearest to the Persians. And though Sake didn't invade Europe for another four centuries, three centuries, four centuries, the Sake and the Masagete started to invade Europe in large numbers. But by then, they weren't only called Goths, they were also called Huns. That the Huns or a division of the Masagete is very clear in classical historians such as Procopius. The Sake invaded Europe in large numbers, but they were not called Sake in the 4th century AD. By then, they had their own peculiar names. They were Vandals. Some of them were still Saxons and called themselves Saxons, but they had many other names as well that belonged to Germanic tribes. Compare says, I'm sorry, continuing my own notes on what Compare has just said. The earlier Greek writers had indeed traced many of those same sake into Europe, and they certainly did, where they were also known as Scythians, and later they were called Galatahi. And the Romans divided the Galatahi into Gauls and Germans. Pliny's perspective is a first century Roman perspective, but the connection of the Germans to those same sake should not be doubted. As for the Arame, or sometimes Aramaspi, that name is another can of worms, because Aram is the name for the Syrians of Scripture. And there were indeed Syrians, if we read all of the Assyrian inscriptions. There were indeed Syrians who were deported by the Assyrians. However, if the connection to the name Aram is linguistic rather than ethnic, many of the Israelites were also speaking Aramaic by the first century, as Josephus attests in his preface to his book, Wars of the Judeans. He wrote it in Aramaic so that the northern barbarians would understand his writing because that is who he wrote it for. Returning to Capere, he says, others have noted this early migration into Germany. For example, Herodotus mentions a migration and settlement <clears throat> of a people he calls Signahi, who themselves claim to be colonists from Media and who migrated as far as the Rhine River. <clears throat> 
Remember that among the places the Israelites were resettled were in the cities of the Medes. And I must say that Herodotus actually did write about the Siganahi and also said that they were the only people that he knew lived north of the Danube. And Herodotus, as he wrote about the Siganahi, was describing a visit which he had made to some of the cities on the Danube personally. And he was recording his experience. Compare says that, also note that Pliny the Elder said, the more ancient writers give them the name of Arami, an Aramean, in modern language called Syrian. In Deuteronomy 26.5, every Israelite was commanded to confess, a Syrian ready to perish was my father. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there with a few and became a nation, great and mighty and populous. Hence, such ancient writers could correctly identify the Israelite Scythians as Arameans, for they had come from a land which was a part of Syria. And this is, well, I don't know if Deuteronomy 26.5 is the best verse to show a connection between Arameans and Israelites. We have already explained that the dispersed Israelites who remained in Mesopotamia in Josephus' time, we have already explained that they understood Aramaic, and Josephus had called them upper barbarians, while the Arameans were a people related to the Israelites. The Septuagint version of Deuteronomy 26.5 says in part, my father abandoned Syria and went down into Egypt and sojourned there with a small number and became there a mighty nation and a great multitude. Now, Abraham had originally come from Padan Aram, or the plain of Aram, which was in northern Syria. Returning to Capere, he says, among the tribes of the Scythians, the Macedonians attracted the notice of all the ancient historians by their numbers and warlike ability. Those who described them in more detail divided them into the Macedonians and Tisigetae. The Gede part of the name soon evolved into Goth. The Macedonians were the greater Goths, and the Tisigetae were the lesser Goths. Thus, we already find among the Scythians names we can identify as the people who later conducted the great migrations into Europe. The Goths, as we know, were later called Ostrogoths, meaning East Goths, and Visigoths, meaning West Goths. Now, to go back a few centuries, the Sake were allies of the Medes and Persians in the attack upon Babylon in 536 B.C. Remember that Yahweh had said that Israel was my battle axe and weapons of war. For with thee I will break in pieces the nations, and with thee will I destroy kingdoms. Yahweh had used Scythian Israel to maintain constant war against Assyria for nearly a century, until Assyria was too weakened 
to resist the Medes and Persians. Then Yahweh used Scythian Israel, the Sake, to help in the conquest of Babylon when its time had come. Later, King Cyrus of Persia was foolish enough to try to conquer his former allies, the Sake, but he was killed in the battle. King Darius also tried to conquer them, but they, being a nomadic people, retreated before his massive armies until he gave up and retired. Now, just about everything Compare says here can be verified in the pages of Herodotus. However, Darius did, and this is also in the pages of Herodotus, Darius did successfully subjugate many of the Scythians around the Black Sea and above Thrace. He also subjugated the Thracians, as he needed to do for his plans to invade Greece. He wanted to um, cut off the lumber supply to the Greeks for the building of ships so that they couldn't build any new ships before he invaded Greece. Darius's son Xerxes continued those plans after the death of his father. Clifton Emmeheiser added a critical note in reference to the, um, the death of Cyrus, which said, at another place, Compare commented, now to go back a few centuries, the Sake were allies of the Medes and Persians in the attack upon Babylon in 536 BC. Later, King Cyrus of Persia was foolish enough to try to conquer his former allies, the Sake, but he was killed in the battle. The story of how Cyrus is killed is found in Herodotus, chap, I'm sorry, Book 1, Chapter 205, through the end of Book 1. I don't know if you have ever heard of Queen Tamiris or not, but she was of the tribe of the Massagete, of royal blood. And after her husband, the king, had died, she had to take charge of their army. She outmaneuvered and outwitted the biblical Cyrus, who was killed in battle when he tried to subdue her and her tribe. And that is said to have happened about 530 B.C. Returning to Compare, Professor Rawlinson says that the original development of the Indo-European language took place in Armenia, which, you will remember, was at that time occupied by Scythian Israel. Certainly, from these people, we can trace the introduction of this language into Europe. And that is true. In our own essays on the origins of the Germans, we have also presented work from a Russian anthropologist named S.A. Grigoryev, who corroborates what Compare repeated here from Rawlinson concerning language. He simply uses different terms. He says that the language originated in what roughly corresponds to Kurdistan. Now, Kurdistan really doesn't exist on your maps. Kurdistan is the region in which a people called the Kurds lived, which would, if it were a country of its own, occupy parts of 
Armenia, Azerbaijan, um, modern Turkey, and modern Iraq, and if I'm not mistaken, parts of the northwest of modern Iran. And Kurdistan is, of course, theoretical, but if we check our ancient maps and locate ancient Armenia and also locate Padanaram, the land from which our father Abraham is from, and the city Haran, which was the city of his fathers, we would indeed find that that ancient Haran and parts of Padanaram to the north are certainly overlapping, and Haran would, would have been in this theoretical land of Kurdistan. There's no doubt that this is where, that this is the original so-called Indo-European homeland, and this is where the Indo-European languages began to develop. I mean, there are other factors as well such as Genesis chapter 11, where those Indo-European languages certainly came into existence. And that wasn't far from Kurdistan. To continue with Kampare, this powerful and increasingly numerous people thereafter spread farther north, both east and west of the Caspian Sea, to the west of it, they penetrated into the Volga and Don river valleys as the Sarmatians and the royal skiffs, nomadic peoples. To reach these lands, they had come up through the Caucasus Mountains by a great pass which is today occupied by the Georgian military road. Perhaps the communists have changed the name of this pass in recent years, but from ancient tribes until within our own lifetimes, this pass was known as the Pass of Israel. The white race of Europe is often called Caucasian because the ancestors of many of them did come out of the Caucasus Mountains. When Alexander the Great began his great marauding expedition across Western Asia and as far as India, he had to skirt the edge of the lands held by the Scythians. Now, namely, I will interject, those lands were Bactria and Sogdiana, but there were some others. In his limitless vanity and ambition, he wanted to conquer them also. It is recorded that their ambassadors said that they would never surrender to him, that they were nomadic peoples who, if they could not resist, could retreat indefinitely before his armies. They had no wealthy cities for him to conquer and loot. Alexander invaded their lands long enough to fight one severe battle with them, defeating the Scythian forces he met. This was evidently just a lesson to them, not to attack the flanks of his forces, for he led his forces out of their territory and never returned to the attack. Actually, he, um, he established a string of fortresses and left Greek soldiers in charge of each one all the way to the Indus River in order to protect the trade routes with India. This is all well and good, but Alexander the Macedonian was also descended from ancient Israel, at least for the most part. 
Continuing with Kampurei, remember, Israel is Yahweh's battle axe and weapons of war. They had already weakened Assyria, and as the allies of the Medes and Persians had helped overthrow Assyria and Babylon, they had beaten off attempts of the Persians to conquer them. The article Scythians, Chambers in, in Chambers Encyclopedia. 1927, records the Scythians, after about 128 BC, overran Persia, routed several Persian armies, and levied tribute from the Persian kings. During the first century before and the first century after Christ, hordes of Scythians, having overthrown the Bactrian and Indo-Greek dynasties of Afghanistan and India invaded northern India and there they maintained themselves with varying fortune for five centuries longer. The Jats of India and the Rajputs had both been assigned the Scythian ancestry. And we would assert that today they are all bastards. Madison Grant writes, Ancient Bactria maintained its Nordic and Aryan aspect long after Alexander's time and did not become Mongolized and received the sinister name of Turkestan until the 7th century AD. The Sake were the blonde peoples who carried the Aryan language to India and ostensibly there were Aryan peoples in India long before the Scythians, and that's a separate story. <coughs> Excuse me. It is recorded in the same Greek classics which Capere quotes here that the Massagete and other Scythians had dwelt for a long time along the Oxus and Chexardas river valleys in Central Asia. Now, that would lead up into um, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan. Many of those people began migrating to the West in the second and third centuries AD when the Goths came into the Roman Empire, when the Huns appeared in history, and when the Saxon tribes began invading Europe. Continuing with Comparay, a land so vast and not the original home of the Israelite Scythians, but already having some inhabitants when they were settled there, must, of course, show varying types of people. The Nordic or Aryan Israelite Scythians conquered these other races, while some speak of a mongoloid type found in some parts of parts of Scythia, ancient writers pretty well agree that the dominant Sake or Massagete Scythians were a Nordic people. Dr. Hans Gunther, professor at Berlin University in his Racial Elements of European History, published in the 1920s, writes, the investigations into the traces left behind them by that widespread Nordic people, the Sake, with its many tribes, are well worthy of attention. They had been living on the steppes of southeastern Europe and spread as far as Turkestan and Afghanistan and even to the Indus. So we see that Kampere's quote from Hans Gunther 
in racial elements of European history reads very much like Theodore Sicula's Book 2, Chapter 43. Compre says, The ancient writers such as Polemon of Ilium, Gallionis, Clement of Alexandria, and Adamantius state that the Sacae were like the Celts and Germans and described them as ruddy fair. The Scythian tribe of the Alans are also described as having a Nordic appearance. Ammianus, about 300-400 AD, calls them almost all tall and handsome, with their hair almost yellow and a fierce look. We have seen that the names of the Massagetae and the Fisigetae evolved into Goths, the Ostrogoths, or East Goths, and the Visigoths, or West Goths. The historian Ptolemy, who died about 150 AD, mentions a Scythian people descended from the Sacae called Saxons, who had come from Media. Albinus, who lived in the first century BC, also says the Saxons were descended from the ancient Sacae in Asia, and in the process of time, they came to be called Saxons. Now, I'm not sure about that quote from Albinus. I would like to check it out one day. Perdot reports that the Cimbrians came from between Black and Caspian seas, and that with them came the Angli. Here, Compare must be referring where he refers to Claudius Ptolemy, where he refers to Ptolemy, I'm sorry, he must be referring to the second century AD Greek geographer and mathematician Claudius Ptolemy, who died in 170 AD. The reference to Perdot which he makes here, must be to Humphrey Perdot, the 17th century English churchman and scholar. He is often quoted by his title as Dean Perdot by later church historians, since he was the dean of the Norwich Cathedral. I believe that um, William Whiston, in his translation of Josephus, in the footnotes, actually quoted Dean Perdot frequently. Continuing with Compare, he says, we are now well into established European history. By the beginning of the 4th century AD, many of the Goths were already Christians. In the 4th century, there were several collisions between the Visigoths and Rome. And in 410 AD, the Visigoths became the masters of Italy and captured Rome. Later, they moved on into southern France and northern Spain, where they settled permanently. Compare avoids any discussion of the Huns here. In his series on the Revelation, we asserted that Compare had misidentified the Huns, and we will continue in that assertion. He says of the Visigoths, later they moved on into southern France and northern Spain, where they settled permanently. The Ostrogoths settled in what is modern Hungary about 455 AD under Theodoric the Great, and they were really, I believe, closer to northern Italy as well. They conquered Italy about 493 AD and set up an Ostrogoth kingdom in Italy, which, however, was short-lived. Their descendants are the fair-skinned, blonde Italians of northern Italy. And that's not entirely true. Another tribe called the Lombards 
appeared in Italy a little later. However, the Goths had ended the Roman Empire. Yahweh's battle axe, again destroying the kingdoms of the Babylonian order of empires. And the Goths ended the Roman Empire, but they had great assistance from the Huns who defeated them. And the Huns had continued to fight the Romans on the, and the Byzantines on the eastern frontiers of the empire, which gave the Goths much assistance because due to the Huns, the Romans could not reallocate forces to fight the Goths. So the Huns cannot be discounted from this equation. Likewise, the, uh, the, the Franks and, and the Angles and the Saxons in their threatening of the northern parts of the Roman Empire, the Romans were not permitted to reallocate forces to fight the Goths. So Rome was being attacked on several fronts all at once. All of them contributed to the fall of the West of the Western Roman Empire. The Angli and the Saxons moved up the Danube Valley and settled in Germany and along the Baltic shores, as is well known. From there, the Jutes, Angles, and Saxons colonized England after the Roman legions were withdrawn in 408 AD. And, and it's not true that they were entirely withdrawn by any means. Actually, the earliest waves of migration penetrated to the farthest edges of the European continent, partly because they could move through nearly empty lands without meeting any strong people strong enough to effectively resist them. It was partly because they were pushed farther by the later waves of Israelite migration coming behind them. Hence, we find the settlement of the Scandinavian Peninsula pretty well completed before the arrival of the Jutes, Angles, and Saxons on the southern shore of the Baltic Sea. The tribes that settled along the shores of the Baltic were a great maritime people, as some of the Israelites had been even when still in Palestine, as Yahweh had prophesied. The Jutes, Angles, and Saxons came from within the Baltic Sea, but their ocean-borne raids on England were heavy and continuous. There are a lot of tribes mentioned in the history of Tacitus in the Germania, for instance, and, and in other histories, which Comparé is ignoring, and he's oversimplifying, because a lot of those tribes, in, in fact, practically all of those tribes mentioned by Tacitus, also came from the Sacae, the Scythians, the Chimerians. They are every bit as much Israelites or traceable back to ancient Israel as are the Angles and the Saxons and the Jutes. The Jutes, Angles, and Saxons came from within the Baltic Sea, but their ocean-borne raids on England were heavy and continuous. Later, by invitation of the British, they settled along the eastern shores in East Anglia, Mercia, North Umbria, Sussex, Wessex, Essex, and Kent. The first century before and the first century after Yahshua, the hordes of Scythians, having overthrown the Bactrian and Indo-Greek dynasties of the 
of Afghanistan and India, invaded northern India, and there they maintained themselves with varying fortune for five centuries longer. The Jats of India and the Rajputs had both been assigned the Scythian ancestry. Kampare repeats himself, and, and I'm kind of surprised that he didn't instead take the time to mention the Sweons or, or the Aisti, the modern Estonians, or other tribes of Scythians. William the Conqueror invaded England in 1066 AD with the Normans. They were actually Vikings who had settled on the coast of France in the province of Normandy. Norman really being derived from Norsemen. So we see that the migrations of Israel, first into Scythia, expanding there, then gaining the names of Goths, Angli, and Saxons. Under those names, moving into their present European homelands is a well-established historical fact, but the Swabians and, and the Boyi and a whole lot of other tribes shouldn't be so easily overlooked. There is also the fascinating story of the early migrations by sea, but that is, a, is another subject in itself. So finally, in the end, Compare does mention the earlier migrations by sea, but he never really got around to telling that story, so far as we know, of his entire ministry. However, where he follows Goths, Angles, Saxons, and Jutes at the end, we feel that he falls short, because the other Germanic tribes, which were never called by these names, were indeed just as much Israelites as the Angles and the Saxons. There were British Israel writers long before Compare, who had very unfairly denied any relation between Anglo-Saxons and Germans. Compare's oversimplification of the history seems to either be derived in part from British-Israel sympathies, British-Israel influence, and certainly would lend, at least in part, to support some of the ridiculous British-Israel assertions. We can't discount that the Cherusky or, or, or the Vandals or, or the Swabians, the Swabians, or, or any of the other Scythian Israelite tribes from the history of Israel. We can't give the impression that we would, or we end up in the same boat with the, these clowns in British Israel. In conclusion, we shall offer the critical notes of Clifton A. Emmerheiser, which he had published when he published his sermon. And he said, this has been an excellent historical presentation by Bertrand L. Compré that I would rate nearly 100%. This demonstrates why it is so important to study history in unison with the Bible. This subject has been so well covered by Compare that I can only amplify on certain positions. Now, we wouldn't deny Clifton's assessment, but we have to watch where Compare oversimplified or made omissions, and we can't base our doctrine on Compare. He is the beginning of our 2C line Christian identity studies. He is not the completion. 
Clifton goes on to say, much of this history has been repudiated as it flies in the face of the faulty premises of nominal churchianity. The rediscovery of the identity of Israel was the enlightenment brought forward by John Wilson and Edward Hine in the second half of the 1800s. The Israel message then spread worldwide with Wilson and Hine receiving large quantities of mail. But because it went against the flawed teachings of the church, it was soon suppressed and almost died out, being labeled a cult as it is today. In spite of all the resistance to the message, it has survived and represents the only authentic narrative. Compare made the statement, there are some people that won't believe Yahweh, which is true. I could cite numerous examples where once brought face-to-face with the Bible passage, they will simply say, I don't believe that. It is like where Daniel said in Daniel 2.44, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. Yet nearly all of churchianity will insist that we must take the gospel to everyone. There's only one gospel, and that's the gospel of the kingdom. Next week, we will be in Panama City, Yahweh willing. Friday night, we will commence with our presentation of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Tomorrow night, I'm going to um, present, it, it might be a varied discussion, but I'm going to begin with Libertarianism Cannot Be Christian, an essay I wrote three years ago. The political season is here once again, and we should try to steer Christians away from the deceit of controlled politics. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.